Our reading this afternoon is from Luke 6, 27 through 36. This is what Holy Scripture says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, imagine this afternoon that you're on a show like Shark Tank. You're a wealthy investor looking to put forward money into a new opportunity. And let's say I come to you with this pitch. I want to open up a new chain of grocery stores. It will have no branded items. The majority will be private label. We won't do any TV advertising. We'll have no social media presence. Not only that, nothing will ever be on sale. We won't offer any coupons, and there will be no self-checkout. Our stores will offer a much smaller selection of groceries per category. The aisles won't be spacious, and we won't have a lot of parking like our competitors. Would you invest in my grocery stores? The Freakonomics podcast posed the same question last year in one of their episodes and then revealed that this chain of grocery stores already exists. Now, some of you may have already guessed that this chain of grocery stores is none other than Trader Joe's. Now, who here has shopped at Trader Joe's before? All right, a, a good number of you. And as the podcast went on to elaborate, Trader Joe's not only operates in an uncommon manner, but also draws out of its shoppers an uncommon loyalty. So out of those of you who raise your hands, who have shopped at Trader Joe's, how many of you are fans of Trader Joe's? All right, almost the same number of hands. Yeah, it's proving my point. I, too, am a big fan of Trader Joe's. During my four years in grad school, I exclusively did my grocery shopping at Trader Joe's, and that was quite possibly the highlight of my week. <laughs> but I'm no match for Kirk DeSermia. Now, Mr. DeSermia works for the National Park Service, and he lives in Seward, Alaska, 2,300 miles away from the closest Trader Joe's. But he is such a super fan of Trader Joe's that whenever he has to travel for work, which is fairly frequently, he'll always look up the closest Trader Joe's to the hotel where he is staying at. He'll bring an extra suitcase or duffel bag and then buy a couple hundred dollars worth of Trader Joe's products to take back to Alaska with him. And then he will then post his haul on Facebook. And, and the Facebook page that he started, which is titled, Bring Trader Joe's to Alaska. Now, Trader Joe's 
not only creates uncommon loyalty in its customers, it is also incredibly profitable. Now, this surprised me. In a 2012 analysis, Trader Joe's is estimated to sell $2,000 of groceries annually per square feet. Whole Foods, in contrast, sells $1,200 of groceries per square feet, and Walmart, only $600. So how do they do it? Well, as I mentioned earlier, they operate in a distinctive and uncommon and often counterintuitive way. For instance, those of you who've been to Trader Joe's, you might have noticed that the employees are always stocking the shelves during business hours. Traditional supermarkets stock their shelves overnight for efficiency and to keep the aisles clear, but Trader Joe's deliberately st stocks when customers are in the store. Have you ever wondered why? It maximizes customer interaction. They want their employees out there interacting, helping, and giving their customers a pleasant shopping experience. It's the same reason they, they don't do self-checkout. Now, in case you're wondering, today's sermon is not about Trader Joe's. It's about love. Last week, Jason talked about what it means to be a disciple. And this week, Jesus continues in his, his instructions to his disciples, teaching them the fundamental way they are to live. They are to live a life of love. But just as Trader Joe's operates in a distinctive and often counterintuitive way, Jesus' way of love is distinctive and counterintuitive. It challenges the world's wisdom, and it challenges us. It is not common sense, nor is it logical, but from the very beginning, when Jesus' disciples began to follow this way of love, it turned the world upside down. So what is his way of love? Well, I want to approach our passage for today, Luke 6, 27 through 36, by asking three questions. Three simple questions. Who should we love? How should we love? And why should we love? Who should we love? Well, the, the answer to our first question is we are to love the unlovely. Love the unlovely. Jesus begins in verse 27 saying, But I say to you who hear, he is no longer addressing those to whom he has proclaimed woes upon in verses 24 through 26, but those who hear, those who he has called blessed in verses 20 through 22. The Greek word for hear can often include the meaning of listening and obeying, and I think that's what's in view here. Jesus is addressing his disciples, those who desire to follow him. And to his disciples, he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. In Jesus' way of love, the first type of unlovely person we are to love is our enemies. The command to love our enemies is one of Jesus' most famous sayings, and no, no doubt whether you've grown up in church or maybe you're here for the first time, you probably have heard this before, love your enemies. But is this an easy command to follow? We would be, de be deceiving ourselves if we say yes. The natural tendency of the heart is to hate our enemy. One good litmus test of this natural tendency is the revenge movie. Do you ever feel satisfaction or pleasure when you watch a good revenge movie? I remember watching the movie Taken for the first time and Perhaps some of you have seen that movie. 
And while it's a simple, straightforward action movie, watching Liam Neeson threaten and then take down the criminals who had kidnapped his daughter was immensely satisfying. I loved hating his enemies, and millions of other people did too. Revenge movies appeal to our sense of justice and our natural tendency to return hurt with hurt. It's not surprising at all that in Matthew's version of Jesus' teaching on the same subject, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens by saying, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now the Jewish tradition had added to the Old Testament commandment to love your neighbor because this was the logical conclusion. We're to love our neighbors and hate our enemies. It was just common sense. Hating your enemies allows you to protect yourself. You put distance between you and them. You have a healthy suspicion of their actions and motives. Hate can often be a powerful motivator. It can motivate you to destroy, control, or stifle your enemy so that you can never be hurt or powerless again. And sadly, as American culture becomes increasingly secularized, we see the philosophy of hate your enemy play out in many arenas. People on both sides of the political aisle, Republicans and Democrats, demonize and vilify the other side. Both parties motivate their base to take action, to vote, to organize out of hate. They want to see the other side destroyed, controlled, or stifled. More than ever, those who follow Jesus have an opportunity to be distinct from the world in the way we treat our enemies. For Jesus calls us not just to tolerate or be decent to our enemies or occasionally to say something, ni something nice about them, but to love them, to love them. And Jesus doesn't let us get away with just some good feeling towards our enemies, for he recognizes that a true heart attitude cannot be easily separated from concrete action. Love and doing good are tied together, as we see in verse 27. And in verse 28, we are commanded to bless and pray for our enemies. Jesus includes bless and pray because when it comes to a difficult command like this, it is easy to find loopholes. That's what our heart loves to do. We, we would just want to satisfy the letter but not the spirit of this law of love. We might deceive ourselves into thinking, I feel okay towards this person. I try and do nice things to them. I'm loving my enemy, right? But Jesus comes back to us, and he says, what about the words in your mind and in the deepest recesses of your heart? Are you blessing them? Are you praying for them? Jesus wants us to see that love for our enemies is comprehensive and all-encompassing. Now, perhaps some of you at this point may be thinking, I have no disagreement, but this doesn't apply to me. I don't have enemies in my life. In Jesus' day, the enemies were obvious. Israel was an occupied territory under Roman rule. Every day, when a Jewish man or woman walked the street, and saw a Roman soldier on the street corner, it would have been a challenge to apply Jesus' words. Likewise, after Jesus' death and resurrection, in the, day of the, in the days of the early church, both Romans and Jews would often persecute Christians. And again, there were 
real enemies to grapple with. But what about today? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. Who do you find it hard to think well of? Who feels like an obstacle in your life, opposed to your happiness, your goals, your agenda? Who do you not pray for and would recoil at the thought of having to pray for them? Who do you curse in your heart instead of blessing them? Those are your enemies. The people you feel least like loving, those are your enemies. For some of you here today, it could be your spouse. It could be the one child that your heart grows harder and harder toward each and every day. It could be a difficult manager or supervisor at work. It could be an estranged family member or parent that even in their old age finds ways to hurt you and cut you down. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, in Jesus' way of love, the other type of unlovely person we are to love is the needy person. We see this in Christ's commands to give to everyone who begs from you in verse 30 and also in verse 34. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? In some ways, it feels wrong to call a needy person an unlovely person. But if we're honest with ourselves, isn't that how we often think of them? in our hearts. On the surface, we may smile and give to them happily, whether it's our money or time or attention, but by the third time or the fifth time, they ask for something. That smile becomes a bit more strained and resentment grows in our hearts. Why can't you get it together? I'm not doing that great myself. Okay, maybe that's enough from me. These are all thoughts that may run through our heads when we deal with the needy. Like our enemies, we can dehumanize the needy. We may not see them as obstacles like our enemies, but we can dehumanize the needy and see them as parasites that drain us of life or dead weight that drags us down. Again, the natural tendency in our hearts, in our interaction with others, is to do a type of record keeping, a relational math, so to speak, that tracks and calculates how much the other person has done for us historically and recently, whether they're in the red or we're in the red, how big is the gap between what I've done for them and what they've done for me? Do you wonder who the needy are in your life? They're the ones who are way in the red, where the gap is big, and it makes way more sense to just not pick up their calls, to avoid them, and to just sort of drift away relationally. And let's be real, in a room of this size, some of you struggle with the idol of money. And let me just say that I'm with you in that struggle. I worry too much about money and financial security. And it's all too easy to close our hearts to what Jesus is saying, because we take the most extreme application purposely just to reject it. Well, this is silly, because if I follow Jesus' commands, I would be homeless. I wouldn't be able to provide food and shelter for my family? And doesn't that go against other parts of the Bible? But I think one biblical scholar captures exactly what Jesus is trying to get at when he says this. The Christian should never refrain from giving out of a love for his possessions, 
Love must be ready to be deprived of everything if need be. Of course, in a given case, it may not be the way of love to give, but it is love that must decide whether we give or withhold, not a regard for our possessions. To follow Jesus' way of love means to love people more than our possessions, and we demonstrate this type of love by loving the, the needy, those who have little or nothing to give back to us. And isn't that where loving our enemies and loving the needy overlap? Both are groups of people where the likelihood of receiving something back from them, whether it's love or favor or material benefit, is little to none. It's the worst possible type of investment, high risk and low return. Is Jesus' way of love calling us to defy common sense and what is logical? Well, that brings us to our next question. How should we love? How should we love? And we are to love unreasonably. Jesus' way of love is love that defies all worldly wisdom and logic. It is unreasonable in that it pushes beyond the boundaries of what a normal, kind person would do. Verses 29 through 30 further illustrate this unreasonable love when, they, when it says, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now those of you who enjoyed the movie Taken might have expected Jesus to say, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, strike them back. Those of us who are gentler by nature might have said, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, still smile at them on the street, but keep your distance. But the love Jesus calls us to does not withdraw. It presses in. It remains vulnerable and generous, even in the face of repeated hurts and insults and material loss. It is an unreasonable love in that it has no basis in self-interest or expectation of return. Verses 32 through 34 capture this idea. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. The way of the world is to love or to do good to those who have done the same to us. Payment for a debt. We owe them. Or it is to lend to those who will not only pay us back, but when we're in a tough spot, we can call in the favor that is owed to us. After all, that makes sense. Why help someone who can't help you? To do so is a waste of your time and resources. Why love someone who is ungrateful or who never returns your love? It might surprise us to learn that loving our enemies is not so uniquely Christian as some might say. For instance, an early Babylonian wisdom text says this, Do not return evil to the man who disputes with you, Requite with kindness your evildoer. Smile on your adversary. Another example comes from the instruction of a, a man, Anopet, a, an Egyptian text, 
So steer that we may bring the wicked man across, fill his belly with bread of thine, so that he may be sated and may be ashamed. Both texts actually encourage the readers to love their enemies, but with self-interest in mind. The Egyptian text is much more explicit. Kindness is shown in order to reform the wicked, to, to bring them over to your side. The Babylonian text comes in the context of avoiding the legal disputes of the day. Kindness is shown to an enemy as a means to lessen the damage that they could inflict on you because they, they might be a powerful person. As a more modern example, Arthur C. Brooks, a social scientist, a writer, a professed Catholic, he wrote a book called Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. And here's what he says why we ought to love our enemies. Quote, my point is simple. Love and warm-heartedness might not change every heart and mind, but they're always worth trying, and they will make you better off. I have nothing against Mr. Brooks, but his love is not Jesus' way of love. It's too reasonable, and it's ultimately based in self-interest. It falls short because the appeal is to love your enemies for your personal character growth. Jesus' way of love is unreasonable without expectation of return or reciprocation, without self-interest. And if you've really been absorbing this so far, from our normal human ability and perspective, it's an impossible love. So what can motivate this impossible love? And why should we love in this way? That brings me to my final question. Why should we love? Why should we love? Love because you have known God's love. Love because you have known God's love. What is your heart's response to Jesus' way of love? I fear that some of you here are like the rich young ruler who responded to God's commands, all these I have kept from my youth. If that's the case for you, your soul may be in danger. You're walking down the path of Pelagius. He was a fourth century British monk who believed that we were able to be faithful disciples of Christ by our own power. But if instead you desire to walk and follow Jesus' way of love, but know that you are weak, proud, selfish, and that Jesus' commands are beyond your ability, you are in a good place. In Luke 17, beginning in verse 3, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Is that not Jesus' way of love right there? To be sinned against seven times in a day and to continue to forgive, to continue to press into relationship with someone who's looking less like a brother and a lot more like an enemy. How do you think the disciples responded? The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. If you're here today and you don't know much about Christianity, it can be easy to think, that like any other religion, we're a religion of morals and rules. Be good, do good, love others. And I fully admit there are morals and rules, but unlike other religions, there is impossibility. Christianity 
is the impossible religion. Take even this passage. It's impossible for a person in their natural state to live this way. I want you to come away with this. Christianity is an impossible religion because it's a supernatural religion. When what God asks and requires of us goes beyond our natural and innate ability, that's why it's supernatural. It's above our nature. It requires something from the outside, something, something, someone greater than any power this natural world has to break through and enter into our existence. And that someone is the one who spoke these very words. That someone is Jesus. We are only able to walk in Jesus' way of love, to love the unlovely, unreasonably, unreservedly, unselfishly, unconditionally, when we come to see that we are the unlovely. We were his enemies. We were the needy with nothing to offer him. Even for those of us who have come to know him as our Lord and Savior, our love still pales in comparison to his love for us. He truly gave up everything, including his own life, by dying on the cross so that we might always know his love. We will never be able to love Jesus' way if, if his love is just a lofty example out there. It needs to be our experience in here. Know his supernatural love for the unlovely, for you. Let it transform and soften your hearts once again so that you might, by Jesus' strength and grace, love the unlovely in your life in a way that defies the logic and wisdom of this world. We love because he first loved us. That's at the heart of the final verses in this passage. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus mentions reward here not to dangle it in front of us like a carrot, because that would undercut the whole point of a love that is not motivated by self-interest, nor is a reward a relationship with the Father as sons. For Jesus is speaking to those who already know him, who are following him as disciples. Rather, the reward is the Father's pleasure and favor that we are living in visible demonstration of who we are, his children. For children imitate their parents. The assurance is this, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, whether we imitate and demonstrate our Father's love for us does not change our identity as his sons and daughters. But the encouragement is this, live out your identity, be who you are, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Be merciful because you have experienced his mercy. And I'll close with this. In World War II, Corrie ten Boom and her family, who were Dutch Christians, began hiding Jews from Nazis in their Amsterdam home. For two years, they successfully hid Jewish refugees from the Nazi authorities. But on February 28, 1944, a Dutch informant told the Nazis about the ten Booms and how they were hiding Jews. That day, the whole family was arrested. Corrie and her sister Betsy were then sent to the Ravensbrück concentration camp where Betsy died 10 months later. In 1947, after the war's end, she was speaking at a church in Munich with the message that God forgives. 
When the talk ended, people began to file out of the room, but one man, balding, heavy set, with a gray overcoat and a brown hat, began to work his way up towards the front to Corey. In a flash, she recognized that this man had been a guard at Ravensbrook. He didn't remember her, but she did. And quote, but I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. The former guard went on to tell her that he had become a Christian, and though he knew God had forgiven him for his horrible crimes, he asked for her forgiveness and held out his hand. Can you imagine how difficult it must have been for Corey to love her enemy in that moment? She recounts it like this. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Now, I love her raw honesty because in order to love the unlovely person before her, her enemy, she relied not on her natural power, but she cried out for Christ's supernatural power to change her heart, to love and forgive this man. And she goes on to say this, and having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say it. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. May Jesus' love be fresh for us today and each day so that we might walk in his way of love. Let's pray together. Our Father God, this is a well-known passage, but also a challenging passage. Perhaps it is easy to read it and just let it pass through our minds because we've heard it before, and perhaps we do that too because it's, it's hard to follow. I pray that we would come to you broken, humble, needing your strength. We don't have the ability the power to love our enemies on our own. So we cry out to you. We don't have the ability, the power to love the needy and without any expectation of return. So we rely on you. We cry out to you. May your love for us in Jesus be new and fresh to us today. And may it allow us to truly love those who are difficult to love in our lives. Expand our hearts. Work in us what we cannot work in ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.